This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I am a big uh, proponent of marriage. I think it's incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the one of the great fundamental uh resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's, it's, it's essential to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of, of our society, all marriages are not created equal, right? So if, if a 19 to 24-year-old person gets pregnant Historically, we'd say you got to marry. You got to marry the man. Marry the man that you know makes it legit. Now we've got a legitimate thing going on here, and then all of a sudden we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole. And the problem is, it's not the reality they're finding. They're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long-term health for the mother in economic uh, with economic struggles. So. It's, it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage. Now, we should probably be pushing, well, let's not get pregnant, right? That should be pushed. But again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or, you know, things happen that all of a sudden yet you're pregnant – one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one-on-one. What is the 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 educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the uh, financial implications? What What is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's, these are all important parts of the decision. And there are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father? What are the, what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out so, you know, it used to make more sense, and I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture. We were in a different environment where we could just say, you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in, in smaller town kind of Christian-supported cultures and environments because you had a tight-knit group maybe more around you. But in inner-city, difficult, financially-strained situations— it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, and if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a, in a marriage um, if if that has to happen as well. So let me give you some other things we want to blow up, a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage 
coach. I, I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a, I am a realist, though. And um, to think that it's the answer, it, sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is, um, you know, there's it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here, that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that. Um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? We got to be real about what what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the the reality is, is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know, myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. But- <laughs> Some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction, but it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Um, uh, Let's do one more and then we'll take a break. Um, Differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship, just like, you know, uh, potential infections and issues in our environment are better for your for your immunization, for your uh, immunology, your ability for your immune system to be strengthened. You need a resistance, right? You need to have something fighting against you. The same is true in our marriages. Whenever somebody tells me we never fight, I don't think, oh, they're healthy. I immediately think, well, how? Is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Uh, Thank you. And another myth that we've got to blow up. We'll take a break, come back, continue this coaching corner, give you a few more myths about marriage that we need to uh, really focus and deal with. Stick with us, folks. Helping you uh, love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um, another little uh, myth for you as we're debunking some of the myths about uh, marriage. Um, we've kind of already talked about the fact that, uh, you know, in your marriage, kids 
can bring happiness, but they also can bring dissension and division. So it depends on what you're focusing on. That's one merit myth we got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex, less <laughs> sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex and they're actually having better sex as they would rate it than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier. But uh, 43% said that of the singles, um, women who were be- ages, between the ages of 25 and 29 reported having uh, uh, fewer uh, sex, uh, ha- having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age. So that's, you know, Pretty interesting, pretty interesting little myth debunked. Um, another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's it's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things that is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big dis- d- uh, division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researcher said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less uh, willing to commit. Bing! There you go, folks. Just a few of the myths about marriage and children uh, and communication debunked for you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. The strengths become the weaknesses. So uh, over evolution of the ma- of the body, we we needed certain traits to survive. And the body learned. And, you know, if you were able to survive long enough to procreate and have children, those genes could be handed down. And now look at the curveball we've got because we were able to run and sweat and, you know, rehydrate. Our body started craving salts and water and fluids. Now, all of a sudden, that has turned into, hey, let's go get some fries and a Diet Coke. Not good. Or fries and a Coke. And now all of a sudden your brain loves the sugar because it wants as much sugar on board as it can get. Your brain loves the salt. And now we have to deal with it. It used to save our lives and now we don't need to chase an animal and run and sweat and perspire for hours. So um, how do we handle it now? Do you know how many times I've had people say, well, I mean, I know I've got this physical problem. I mean, I know, I know I've been anxious and depressed my entire life. I know it. But I don't want to get medicine. I don't want it. But what you're battling isn't just a weakness. You're battling evolutionary genes that are in you that have made you be a really uh, maybe tense, anxious person so you wouldn't get you know, snuck up on by a wild animal or a predator. You have that worry. That's in you. That's not going away. And so as the good doctor told us, you can either regulate it away, you know, by having 
more regulation on what we can do, what we can't do, more regulation on our mental health industries. Or we could also just, I guess, use behavior change, which I have a lot of people want to get over anxiety, but they don't know how and they don't get therapy and they don't read books about it. Or eventually you're going to need to let science in. Somehow we need to break down a little bit, I think, of the belief that science is against us instead of science maybe there to be the valuable bridge to to bridge our our past and our future. I mean, and a lot of the people are God fearing people that you know they don't they don't think they need medicine and drugs to fix something. But God also gave you science, right? He also gave you you know insight. The ability to learn and to read and to think. He gave you choice and agency. So if we're going to, you know, invoke God into the argument about how we handle our evolution and our realities, then let's involve him in everything. There are scientists that are deeply prompted and moved by a God. So let's make choices and let's not do it at the expense of our health. Interesting stuff, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us, folks. More fun in just a few minutes. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Should companies be doing more to make the world a better place? Some people believe that corporate America should get back to thinking about more than just profits. By the way, like like many did many years ago, uh, it's, this isn't a new idea, uh, and we're going to be reviewing it and, and um, trying to learn whatever we can from Dr. Marina Whitman, who's a professor of business administration and public policy at the University of Michigan. She's also a former senior executive at General Motors. Uh, Dr. Whitman, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Terry. Good morning. This is so good to have you. This um, Here's the question for you, Marina. If we look at this, corporate America has an obligation, obviously, to make money, Um but in the making of the money, they also seem to also have a, an amazingly strong place in our society, pillars, if you will, that hold up our society. How do they know how to balance it all? It's very tough, as you suggest. Um, in the decades right after World War II, uh, they managed to do both, largely because they didn't have a great deal of competition. Uh, within the United States, companies were very highly concentrated, so not much competition. And the rest of the world, either because they were still recovering from World War II or because they hadn't become sufficiently developed yet, couldn't give our companies much competition. So along with that absence of competition came very high profits, which meant that they could make money and satisfy their shareholders and also do good things for their workers. Um, in those days, workers expected to spend their lives working for the same company and then getting a nice pension at the end. Mm. And they could also help their communities and do uh, a variety of good works without their stockholders unhappy. But Gradually, uh, Europe and Japan recovered, and some of the developing countries developed, and competition 
became much fiercer and profit levels dropped and companies uh, therefore started to focus more and more on the bottom line and move away from the things they used to do for workers and communities. And as you know, most workers now do not expect to work for a whole variety of different companies during their working lives. And the kind of security that used to come with a lifetime job just isn't there anymore. Yeah. you um, In your article, Corporate America Needs to Get Back to Thinking About More Than Just Profits, you cited um, BlackRock uh, Chief Executive Officer Larry Fink. And BlackRock is an enormous uh, organization that uh, I guess is um, – I don't know how you put it. They – they own other businesses. They run other businesses. Is that is that? They own them. Yeah, they, they own. Are, they are capitalists. They invest their enormous assets. I think they're the biggest such company in the world um, in uh, other companies. And Fink took the quite remarkable step of writing to the chief executives of the 500 biggest companies in America, saying. Um, you, we really need you to think not just about profits. Obviously, they have to make profits. Otherwise, they'll go out of business. Right. But what he's saying is you also pay atten- should also pay attention to uh, social needs and social issues if you want us to keep investing or start investing in your companies. Mm. And this, this was a real waker-upper. I mean... Uh, because for quite a time, other big investors uh, were saying to companies, hey, what we really care about is your bottom line and what your stock price is going to look like three months from now. And in the past year or two, quite a lot of CEOs have lost their jobs because uh, that kind of investor uh, essentially got them pushed out if the stock prices didn't measure up to those capitalist uh, expectations. Right. So Mr. Fink's letter was a real game changer. It's actually that, – that, to me, that's, that's pretty exciting. Um, is there a line that we draw between, um, I guess, being socially uh, conscientious and, and helpful to society versus political? Because it also seems like simultaneously – we don't want our companies to be – just jumping in on every political issue. That's right. And, of course, um, we are getting a lot of that. What's interesting, of course, is in at the beginning of the current administration, uh, a lot of companies signed on in various ways to uh, uh, associations or whatever uh, the new president put together but then when they got disenchanted, they dropped out of right. those associations. However, it is certainly true that no matter who is president, companies are spending a lot more money lobbying than they ever used to. So they, quite apart from the characteristics of this particular presidency, they have been getting increasingly involved in trying to affect uh, policies, 
um, in the political environment in mm. this country. Is it's got to be expensive. And I mean, you, you were an executive at General Motors, plus all of your experience studying all of this. Um, it is an expensive venture. Is it in the end? Is it is it too cost prohibitive to get involved or 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 can you do both? Can you make money and no, be socially well, responsible? A lot of companies find that it does pay off. I mean, certainly, um, if you look at, for instance, the most, in some ways, most notable action of the president with respect to businesses, which is the uh, aluminum and steel tariffs, right. companies were spending a lot of money on both sides of the issue because companies that make steel and aluminum wanted the tariffs and companies that use steel and aluminum didn't want them. And um, clearly, uh, together with President Trump's own proclivities, um, that lobbying had, had some effect. Now, when I was at GM, and I've been gone for quite a while now, we had a sort of unwritten rule that we lobbied only on issues that directly affected the company. And we did not get involved in uh, more general uh, social issues. Mm. Now, I don't know to what extent companies are still following that rule. Uh, Some of them, of course, get involved in social issues because it also has some impact on their business. Can you give us examples of companies that are succeeding in this social responsibility? In the social responsibility area? Yeah. Well, um, a lot of companies certainly have taken steps in that direction. You have to define what you mean by succeeding. But uh, one of the real groundbreakers was when Nike, the athletic shoemaker, was challenged by NGOs to take some responsibility for the way their independent suppliers in other countries treated their workers. Mm. And Nike's first reaction was, well, how can we take responsibility for that? They are not our companies. And eventually Nike came around, and so by now have many other companies, uh, to recognize that they have some responsibility for how workers are treated in their supplier companies in other countries. And uh, the situation is by no means perfect, but now the arguments are more about, well, are they really monitoring them effectively, and are they really taking steps to uh, force them to improve conditions, mm. which is a long way forward from saying, that's not our turf, don't bother us about that. Yeah, stay out of that. We're, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Marina Whitman. Marina is a professor of business administration and public policy at the University of Michigan, also author of the book uh, New World, New Rules, The Changing Role of the American Corporation, uh, which was published by Harvard Business School Press. And uh, Marina, one of the things I wonder is, it seems like after World War II, when uh, a lot of these companies were rebounding and and wealthier, it was easier to be socially conscientious. Um, then we, you know, companies have taken a dip, so we focus more on you know sh- shareholder results. 
and if we get rich again, I guess we go back to social responsibility. Is it just a is it just a bouncing ball that's just going to and, keep bouncing? And let me say, by the way, that companies have gotten rich again. Okay, uh, profits are at some kind of all time high, and they are now in a position again to uh, pay attention to other measures as well. Um. Uh, in general, I think um, that companies do, uh, as I say, they in a way have to place profitability first because if they don't, they'll they won't be around it much longer. Right. I mean, look at what seems to have happened to Toys R Us, and if anybody said that five years ago, people would have been absolutely astounded when the lines went out the door. That's so true. Um, but then uh, when companies do have uh, high profits, they can then turn to uh, other issues. But that doesn't happen automatically. That is, uh, you might say in uh, academic terms, it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition. That is, uh, the other side of it is that companies have been heavily prodded, if you like, as uh, our citizens in general have become more conscious of things like environmental issues or or worker conditions in other countries, uh, neither of which uh, were on the radar, so to speak, a few decades ago. Do you um, do you sense that the policy, like the the tax policy, that President Trump just instituted seems like that's going to make some companies more money and at least allow them to move their money uh, more freely in certain ways. Does is, it seems like uh, our government could also incentivize corporations to be more socially involved, and that might create it seems like more support. Um, I mean, so so all benefits don't just come from corporate or don't just come from government. It would spread out some of the social responsibility to other parts of our country. It would, but as you know, uh, a lot of what we call socially responsible activity is, it, it certainly with respect to this administration, quite controversial. Yeah. Um, you know, you have an administration that uh, is a skeptic on climate science, so you wouldn't expect it to encourage companies to do things for the environment. Um, so that it's not simple. And the problem is that if governments did that, it would embed them even more in the controversial social issues of our time. Goodness knows they're embedded enough already. Yeah. And and I think that would be a constraint. Do you – it seems like a, a, an obvious way that companies could be more socially responsible is just in their own neighborhood where – I mean I think of – What's happened to the Rust Belt and how many companies benefited from the Rust Belt forever? And it seems like these organizations could play an enormous role just more in maybe local growth or redevelopment or change than they are. Is is that is that where they could take this versus taking on global issues? Well, of course, the problem is that when companies downsize or leave the Rust Belt, which is 
the situation you're talking about. Uh, usually, they're not in very good shape themselves either. True. Uh, companies that are flying high are less likely to uh, move out. Although, of course, uh, companies, and particularly for a while, this is maybe a little less true now, uh, did tend to go abroad in search of lower labor costs um, in order to stay competitive or to improve their profit picture. Mm. But um, I know when I was at GM and in, in the 80s when the American auto industry was going downhill at a rapid rate, um, was the time when all the plant closings were going on. Yeah. And in my particular job, I had, uh, I was in charge of a group of staffs called public affairs, and uh, I had no say in which plants closed or, or when, but I did persuade the top management, for instance, uh, instead of cutting off all United Way contributions when they closed a plant, because normally their contributions were relative to the size of their employment in a uh, location, and obviously when they closed the plant, yeah. uh, the employment went down. And I did persuade them, instead of simply stopping the, their United Way contributions cold turkey, they should phase them down over time to make the shock a little less. Yeah. So that was kind of a, a small, marginal improvement in uh, their social behavior. Yeah. But uh, usually that's often that's not a great time to expect them to uh, expand. Yeah, to socially. jump on. Um, so, Marina, as we wrap this up, what uh, j- just give us overall – does the future look good as far as corporate America doing more to give back? And what can we do just as average folks, maybe even employees of companies to, or just consumers to, to maybe gently push our corporations to be more socially responsible? Yes. What was the first half of your question again? Do you feel overall, do you feel like there's a a positive future as far as social responsibility? Yes. Well, again, it depends. Uh, to some extent, on how long this expansion, economic expansion, keeps going. Uh, you know, everybody says, well, there's a Russian uh, recession coming sometime, but we don't know when. And again, if we go into recession, that will tend to pull back the reins on uh, socially oriented activities. But the simple fact is that there's no question that the American public in general and customers and workers in particular, have become much more conscious of social issues, particularly environmental issues, which have only been on the radar, really, for, the, for a few decades. Right. And that that will place a kind of floor on uh, companies' uh, socially-oriented activities, either positively or negatively, um, and and I think that will remain, but the state of the business cycle and therefore of companies' profitability will also play a role. Hmm. And you think going forward, uh, what can we do to put to put gentle pressure or to keep to keep 
uh, the companies knowing they need to stay socially responsible? Well, um, of course, partly is how we make our consumer choices and uh, whether we are willing to pay a little more to encourage companies to be socially uh, oriented. You know, there are things like fair trade coffee and, and so forth. Um, and the other is, I suppose, just keep up the general drumbeat on uh, the importance of uh, social concerns and hopefully not get mired in controversy over some of them uh, and keep reminding companies and the public in general, I mean, in a sense, it's the public talking to itself, uh, that we do care. Yeah, such 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 great advice, Marina. Thank you so much for your time, your and your insight. Again, Dr. Marina Whitman is a professor of business administration and public policy at the University of Michigan, and uh, also the author of Corporate America Needs to Get Back to Thinking About More Than Just Profits. You can find that on theconversation.com. Doing what we can to uh, to learn and to help us all be the be the good in the world. We'll continue the journey. A little coach's corner straight ahead. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, there's a lot of uh, interesting pressure and insight that uh, I think we could give corporate America by being a little bit more socially active, perhaps. Um, I, again, I'm not, I'm not big in protesting and I'm not big in scaring you know, companies that... We're going to not do any work with you anymore because you whatever, whatever. But we've seen recently even organizations like Walmart who pulled away uh, some or changed some of their gun sales and their policies on gun on selling guns and ages, certain ages that wouldn't be able to buy a gun at uh, Dick's Sporting Goods and Walmart. I mean, that's I think that's smart, right? It's smart business. But again, it impacts because there are people now that are mad at Walmart that won't go in and buy their gear before they go camping because Walmart has taken such a stand. But um, there there are some things that uh, I think we can take too far. And one of the 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 areas that I, I really – I don't know what it is, but I think doing this show um, and talking about a lot of things that – that that are hard, that are difficult topics, or frustrating to uh, to people out there. I've I've started to feel a little bit of um, the frustration that that each and every one of us can have every day trying to deal with topics and issues that are exhausting topics and issues that really just slowly, I don't know, take the wind out of our sails. And so I wanted to figure out if there was a way that we could somehow be better, try harder. And so I put together some rules that, we, that I, I want to follow uh, to not be so toxic socially. And I've, there's about five different, uh, I, I call them habits, toxic habits, that are stressing us out as a society. The first is overall, all of us, by the way, not just corporate America and not just our president, all of us have this weird obsession of focusing on the me, not the we. 
We um, we don't even believe in our institutions anymore. We don't believe in our government anymore. We don't believe in corporations. We don't believe in universities. Every one of these these supposed institutions, religion, we're starting to pull away from and feel like we don't even need this uh, this these institutions. The, those institutions used to create the we. In this country. And now it seems like we're very focused on the me or the individual. And again, I get it. Every corporation, every organization, every religion, everybody can can also, you know, lose their vision and lose their their sight about the the individual. But we got to be careful about that. Another uh, another habit that I think a lot of us have taken on is that we're so easily offended. I don't know what it is, and maybe it's simply we don't have the protections we used to. We, we've we got a lot more information than ever, but everybody has a chip on their shoulder. Everybody has, you know, a grudge, something that they're mad about and something that kind of their pet peeve that the minute that thing is played, you play that, and it might be guns, it might be whatever, but we have the pet peeve. We got to watch out and start maybe, instead of being so easily offended, just recognize there is another side to every story. And uh, it might be good that you at least learn the other side um, and and figure out why you really are so reactive to an idea. And it doesn't matter what it is. It could be anything that you're reacting to with really strong reaction. Remember, that says so much more about you than anything else. Also, we have another habit that I think is kind of toxic is the fact that we all have an opinion about everything. And the funny thing about our opinions, we feel really strong about something, and a lot of us don't know anything about it. You can have a really strong opinion and still be just grossly misinformed. All of us. I'm not saying you. I'm saying me. All of us. But be careful when you're really opinionated about something. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to people talk about their opinion and all they knew were the talking points that came from that one side of the argument. They hadn't even studied the argument. And I think part of it is because we all can watch television and radio and we have all of these people, even we on the show, we have opinions and we're not informed on everything we have an opinion about, right? We're not. Um, But when we sometimes, what the people that we're watching on TV, they actually are informed. They actually have read some of them, by the way, not all of them, let's be real. But they, they have a little bit more informed opinions um, some, by the way, are just biased and informed to one side of the opinion. But be careful having an opinion that's not that's that's not balanced. Not that you have to believe it in a balanced way, but you have to have at least studied the issue in a balanced way to really have a meaningful opinion. I believe. So be careful. Slow down. Sometimes bite your lip. It might be better. Also, blaming others for our misery. We're we're big into having someone else to blame for why our life is a mess. Be careful, folks. The minute we keep blaming everyone else for our misery, it just makes us all miserable. In fact, we all have to stay miserable just to stay the victim, right? Just some habits, habits, toxic habits, if we're not careful, that will stress us all out. And uh, if, if you notice you have any of those habits, just know that people around you might be feeling some stress because of it. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you love stronger and lead healthier, happier lives.
Welcome back, friends, uh, to the Matt Townsend Show. Again, of course, Terry spends all night researching. Many, you know, just go home to their family. Not Terry. Terry uh, constantly researching. <laughs> I'll see him on the weekend. Yeah, <laughs> see him on the weekend. A Japanese company used 50 engineers to design and build a near-flawless fidget spinner. Why? Wow. <gasps> took them six months. They set a Guinness World Record. Really? The new fidget spinner. Yeah. It spun for 24 minutes and 46 seconds. Wow. Whoa. That is a good spin. That is a great spin. Uh, again, hours of time, research, not, not energy. Sure, not sure if they held it on a finger mm. or if they had some sort of base of some kind. You probably where want spun. a base that's not moving very much. Because... Does that affect the world record? I'm not yeah. sure. That's, so that is the world record time, 24 minutes on a spin. And 46 seconds. Almost 25 minutes. Just put no. it on Dr. Matt's desk. Not a lot of activity going on no, there. Nothing's it's all in. under the desk. That's where he takes That's his nap. That's where I take my nap. 50 engineers. Wow. All other problems I mean, are we, solved. We, you know what? We could cure cancer. Could. Or we could get a fidget spinner to fit, spin for 25 minutes. Ah. Doing what we can, folks, to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You ever had somebody say... You know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits. Bill Marler put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Hmm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more, with the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got you got to anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them, do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. 
why, why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than 30 bacterial outbreaks, primarily salmonella and E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. This seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads to so the hospital. good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got, you got to get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out. Watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices. Because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah. Okay. It also saves your life. It it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. So don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. We're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow, at home, you need a life, not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really – did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No. It's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it, but that's – It sounded right. It sounded like it? a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day. At a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce, probably. Some clam and linguine meal. Mmm. Sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has... Did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No. No. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know, just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, They were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree... Has says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter... Something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart, she just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante, Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then asked for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. 
Milk all the money you can. <laughs> she may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something you can't always do when you find something strange in your meal. You know? Hey, I found some hair. It's just weird to put hair on a necklace. Make, make it into a necklace. No, thanks. I'm going to be in the restroom for a minute. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Man, interesting subject, isn't it? When you talk about morality, the reason we do what we do and why we do it, it's, and we don't consciously sit there and say, I will now go try to look better by being morally superior to everybody. But we all know somebody that has to tell us when we're doing something wrong. Or I had friends growing up in high school that if I, I would make a joke that they would laugh at, but then they'd be like, oh, Matt, shouldn't say that. And it, it was hilarious. That's why they were laughing. And they're like, man, what's wrong with me? Why, why do I say that? Because I must be such a misfit. Anyway, morality. And one of the things I talk a lot about when I work with my clients is we, we, there's a thing called logical force. Okay, so logical force is when we make a decision based on logic, not morality. For example, um, if you have a friend that called you a name or embarrassed you at, a, at an event, it would be logical that you don't talk to her, I guess, for a week. Ignore her. Ben does this all the time with the producers around him. It's very effective. Well, okay. And um, we're talking against it now, so you wouldn't want to probably argue that it's effective. I just need to put that in. Okay. Sorry. So, so you're justified, right? Because you're doing something that is right. If you went and interviewed your friends, nine out of your ten friends, if you had ten friends, Ben, nine out of ten of them would say, yeah, I'd be mad too, and I would ignore Stacy. I'd ignore her. Because that was totally rude. The problem is, even if it's even if it's logical for you to be mad, even if it's uh, and you can see this in our political world, even if it makes good political sense for you to put someone down, for you to destroy someone's career or you know credibility, it, just because it is logical and it it logically can be justified, it doesn't make it moral, right? Your morals, your moral value system and your logic system, don't all, they don't go together because many times the most moral thing you can do when you see something that's been done wrong, like let's go to the story of the guy that killed the lion. Um, I guess you could gang up and jump in and send it to everyone you know and show how moral you are or you could just shut your flapper and – Go make a donation to preserving animals, right? But no one would know about that. So what's the point? What's the point? Why would I do something that nobody knows about? I guess because it's moral. So when I think of a moral person, I think of a Gandhi, uh, a Buddha, Mother Teresa. These people didn't promote their actions. They just acted. I think you're being naive, Matt. (laughs) Is that – are you trying to show – are you trying to get me mad so I would – No, I'm trying to be logical. your larynx. Um, Got to look after yourself in this world. See, again, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Um, that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. All of a sudden, 
it's logical to defend yourself. You feel like you have to defend yourself. Even the guy that was going to rush the stage, he was making a good point. Donald Trump's a bully, so all I wanted to do is just take the – I just wanted to take his his speaker away, his pulpit away. I wanted to get rid of his stand. I didn't want to let him have his voice anymore. Logical. Logical. Not so logical when you think of the fact that there was tens of thousands of people there that would have stopped him. Uh, Twelve or so, he said, you know, Secret Service people that could have killed him or killed someone else trying to stop him. Not super logical. But he feels like he has moral authority to do that. I guess one of the problems we run into in our society is we think we have a right and that right means we have no responsibility. We have a right to say what we need to say, to use our voice, to be mad and to take a stand and even charge the stage. We have a right to do this. But there's also a responsibility. Do you know how bad that could have gone? Secret Service that have weapons – This guy could have either been killed or other people harmed or injured or Donald could have had a heart attack. Things could have happened. There's a responsibility that comes along with all of this. So just because you have a moral right or a right, logical right, it doesn't mean it's going to be moral and healthy for you. And remember, check your own gut. If Why do you need to post certain things? Look at what you're posting. If you're somebody that is constantly posting political things or constantly having to beat up the latest issue morally, um, why are we doing that? Ask yourself, what what do I gain by being this type of person? In the end, you're probably not actually improving your moral system. In the end, your moral system is more between you, your God, you and your people around you. You and the followers that respect you and trust you. That's where your moral system creates strength, not in the masses necessarily. Unless you're somebody that is always in the masses uh, with people following you, I'd keep your moral compass fine-tuned to the people around you. Hoping to help you see the good in the world, stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. You know, more than vision, strategy, creativity, marketing, finance, or even technology, it is ultimately people that determine organizational success. That's why virtually every organization wants more top talent. But do you know what they are looking for? And uh, do does do organizations actually know how to keep their talent um, in the organization? It. Uh, our guest today is the author of the book, the new book, Talent Magnet. Mark Miller is his name, and Mark is the vice president of organizational effectiveness at Chick-fil-A. He began his career at Chick-fil-A um, working as an hourly team member way back in 1977, and now he's uh, he is a leader and the author of the book, um, uh, Talent Magnet, also a best-selling author of Leaders Made Here and Chess Not Checkers. Mark Miller, thank you for being with us today. Great to be with you, Matt. Thanks for the opportunity. You bet. This is it's. It seems like now more than ever, uh, organizations have got to make sure they're focused in on 
not not just finding the top talent, but getting the top talent and then keeping them. How what grade overall do you give corporations in their ability to do this today? Well, I think I think it's all over the board, and I think even within some organizations, you'll see uh, a wide array of performance. Some departments, some functions, some leaders who are better at attracting top talent than others. I think that's one reason it's uh, a topic of interest is there's so much inconsistency out there. Yeah. Is it is it um because we've talked a lot on the show about disengagement and how employees are kind of many are bored with their jobs, they're not being pushed hard enough. Uh, or compensated in certain ways. What is it that that makes it so hard to keep these top performers and top talent in the organization? Well, well, first, let me say that I think the engagement level of the American workforce is not an indictment on the worker. It's an indictment on leadership. Hmm. And leaders create the conditions and the context and the cultures uh, in which people either engage or disengage. I think one reason, to your question specifically, one reason it's so hard is most leaders don't know what it takes to attract and keep top talent. And that was the question that we set out to answer a couple years ago. Um, And interestingly enough, we thought we would just go out and buy some research. And I started by calling Gallup, and then I called Aon and other uh, thought leaders called Marcus Buckingham, and mm. I heard over and over and over again that no one had ever done the research to figure out what attracts top talent. So we commissioned it ourselves. If, if we want to attract them and we want to keep them, it just felt obvious to us that we needed to figure out what is it they're looking for, and that was that was the genesis for this project. Okay, give us some insight. What 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 are they looking for? What did you find out? Well, I think the good news, I'll say, I'll say first, I think there's really good news for organizations all across America. Uh, this is not out of reach. They really only want three things. They want a better boss. Now, you might think, well, doesn't everybody want a better boss? Well, <laughs> interestingly, everyone might say they do, but top talent really cares about the caliber of the leadership they are serving under. It's actually a condition of employment. Typical talent, those that aren't quite as as good, they may say they want a better boss, but they'll work for anybody. Hmm. Top talent wants a better boss. Second thing they want is a brighter future. Well, again, you might say, doesn't everybody want a brighter future? Well, perhaps at some level. But one of the things we discovered is that top talent has much more of a future orientation than typical talent. So the truth is many of the workers that we might engage aren't thinking about the future, Hmm. but the top talent is. And they realize that they're probably not going to work in one job or one career, um, you know, for, for decades. And so they're asking a different set of questions when they walk into an interview, when they consider an opportunity. They're asking things such as, how will I grow? How will I be stretched? What opportunities will I have? They're even asking, whether they articulate this or not, they're asking at some level, will this job or this role make me more employable in the future? Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. 
They, yeah. But there is a difference between the top and the typical talent, and you could actually end up creating your organization to really just foster typical talent. Absolutely. You could, you could, you could design it for the middle of the curve, and you'll have a hard time keeping the brightest and the best. And not even know it because, you know, you got good people. They're good, they're, and we're getting right. results. You're just not right. retaining the, the, the ones that will take it to the next level. Yeah, and let me say when when we talk about top talent, it, it's a, it's a bit elusive, and and you could easily argue that top talent in one job or one role or one organization is different yeah. than that same person in a different organization. So here's how I help people get their head around it. I said, think about your very best employee, not not your best leader, not your best manager, but your best employee the one that consistently performs, they add value, they contribute, they're, they're passionate, they're engaged, that's who this book was studying. Hmm. That's it, that's it. So it may look a little different if you're running an engineering firm versus running a nonprofit. I mean, I got that, but everybody's got that employee. Right. And, and you're so saying – how, how do you get more of them? The three things they wanted uh, in your research was the better boss, the brighter future. What was the and third? third, they want a bigger vision. Yeah. And this – you know, if before the research, I, I worked really hard to keep an open mind. But, but if you pressed me, I would have probably said there's going to be something about leadership and there's going to be something about personal growth, which covered the first two. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would have said bigger vision. Now, in retrospect, it, it's not a surprise. Again, these men and women that we spent time with over the last few years, both quantitative and qualitative research, hundreds of interviews, um, 38 states for interviews. We did the research covered all 50 states, ages 14 to 65. I mean, so it was it was very rigorous, yeah. multi-dimensional research plan. But but what we learned about them is they want to make a difference in the world, and they want to be part of organizations that are making a difference. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to work for a nonprofit or you know a faith-based or charity. Uh, they, want, they want organizations that are socially responsible. They want to be part of corporations and, and entities that give back. Hmm. They care more about mission vision, and values than their typical talent counterparts, which makes sense. They're yeah. looking for a place with for some personal resonance. It's like, yeah, I, I, I know we're trying to make a profit. In, you know, in most organizations, that is the goal. And as our founder here at Chick-fil-A used to say, there's no mission without margin. Yeah, no. We unapologetically, yeah. we want to we earn a, a fair return. But these people go, what, what are you doing with the return? And is this an organization that I can be proud to be part of? Right. So those are the three things they're looking for. Now, I will tell you there was one big surprise what? in the research. And I call it an indirect finding because once we identified these, these three uh, elements that these folks are looking for, I began talking to leaders about these three things. And I encountered numerous leaders who told me that I was wrong. And I said, well, I've been <laughs> wrong before, but we, we, we just spent a lot of time, a lot of energy, 
safety, a lot of money. Uh, we, we, we feel really good about the data. What do you mean I'm wrong? And they said, we are providing a better boss, a brighter future, and a bigger vision, and we can't attract top talent. Hmm. Well, that, that piqued my interest. Yeah. And so we started trying to figure out how could that be true. And what we discovered is there is actually a fourth element. If you want to create a talent magnet, you've got to do those three things, but there's a fourth element. You have to tell the story. And many organizations are doing the things we just discussed to, to some extent. Yeah. But they're failing miserably at telling the story. And you, you actually get no credit if you do those things. And people don't know that you do those things. Oh, interesting. You've got to get out to the people your vision that they're the brighter future and the better bosses. you got to get well, not that out. To your no, I mean yeah, out to the world. Yeah, to, proactively to candidates. I had, I had several leaders, they would say, I tell that story all the time. And I'd say, well, how do you do that? And they would say, well, I do it in orientation. <laughs> and I said, well, it's, it's probably not hurting you. But it's not attracting yeah. top talent. You've already got them. You've already got yeah, the ones already, in orientation. Signed up. And yeah. so that has been a fascinating revelation for a lot of leaders. Yeah, there's some things we can do to shore up this this promise, this value proposition, as some would call it. But we have to be thoughtful. We have to be proactive. We have to be strategic in telling the story and for a lot of organizations, that's that's what's going to make the difference. Again, we're talking with Mark Miller, who is the author of the book Talent Magnet, How to Attract and Keep the Best People. Again, Mark is the Vice President of Organizational Effectiveness at Chick-fil-A. Um, and again, you know what is interesting? Because Chick-fil-A is one of those companies you can tell is telling the story. I mean, their employees are happy. They're, you hear it. You feel it. You see it. Um, you know about it. I just – as somebody that follows organizational leadership a lot and I had spent seven years with Franklin Covey and worked with Stephen Covey and um, you guys ooze it, uh, part Mark. But part of it I guess is some companies almost – it seems like feel like they don't have to do that because you know their name precedes them or – but you're saying if, if companies choose not to do this or if you think you're doing it but the employees actually aren't seeing it, 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 it doesn't matter. In the end, you will lose the talent. Well, people can think highly of a brand and people can think highly of an organization and still not want to work there. Yeah, true. This is what makes them want to work for – I mean a, a, a strong – reputable brand, those are part of the basics. A fair wage, a safe place to work, adequate and appropriate training, those are foundational. What the research reveals is none of those are differentiators because typical talent wants all that as well. But people can admire a brand and not want to work there. Yeah, right. Top talent wants to work in places where they have high confidence, they'll have a better boss, They'll have a brighter future, and they'll be part of a bigger vision. We're actually trying to offer what they're interested in, what they have said they want, 
And when you do, you'll get more of them. And then you asked the question earlier about how do you keep these people? Yeah. Oh, well, you better deliver on the promise. If, if top talent shows up because they believe you and they find out that it wasn't true, they will leave. And they'll leave quickly because they'll, they are seeking the things we just talked about. Is Do you see anything happening in this world where you now can um, – it's easier to almost be self-employed. It's easier to almost just go be a consultant for these companies um, and, and be more independent. You would think that many top talent would just choose to consult or choose to, to, not, um, to not have to have a boss but be their own boss. Well, I think there's, there's a growing – group, as, as you well know, of, of workers who have taken that path. But I know a lot of very talented people, and they, they like being part of a team. Yeah. They like being part of an organizational entity. And for some of them, and I want to be careful not to over overstate this, but it actually goes back to that bigger vision piece, because as individuals, there are many things that we can do to add value to the world. But when you, when you link with an organization, you, you might argue that your reach and your potential for impact increases. Yeah. There's only so much I can do by myself, but if I will, if I will associate myself with a larger entity, um, might make bigger ripples in the world. What would you suggest, Mark, to just the average uh, employee out there that that or not the average one, but one that feels like that they're they're a top talent and and they maybe are in an organization where they're not seeing this, but they also are in a position to influence it. How do we go about influencing our leaders to to become talent magnets? Well, I think I think if you can speak to the felt need, you know, there is a war for talent out there. That's not a new phrase. Uh, you may know, your listeners may know, McKinsey coined that back in '97, hmm. and we we tend to go through of that as shifting demographics and employment or unemployment rates. And there's a lot of factors that contribute to the war for talent, but we are in it right now. We are in it, and it is getting harder and harder to to staff organizations, period. Yeah. And so we felt like if we're going to put out the energy to, to compete in the war for talent, why not go after top talent. So I think if you're trying to influence in an organization, I think if you can align uh, strategies such as this with the felt need of the organization, particularly in this case, you're not talking about expending a tremendous amount of resources. Right. Sometimes it's just tweaking what you're already doing. It's positioning what you're already doing. It's telling the story of what you're already doing. So for many organizations, they're going to find this is a cost-effective way to raise the level of talent in your organization. So if I'm trying to influence within an organization, I'm going to say it meets a felt need at, at minimal incremental expense. Now, let me quickly add, if you're not paying competitive wages, if, if you're not uh, providing uh, the basic training, if, if you're not meeting some of those non-negotiables, you're not going to create a talent magnet anyway. True. So some organizations, they've got some cleanup work to do. But assuming you're doing those things, uh, this is just a very cost-effective way to meet a very real felt need in organizations all over 
the nation. So great. Such great insight. Mark, thank you so much for your time and uh, and just the research, really, um, this idea of better boss, brighter future, bigger vision, and telling the story so essential for all of us that feel you know disengaged or wanting more out of our companies. All of us could pick up uh, uh, those skills, those tools to make it a little bit better for all of us that uh, that we that work under you or that that are trying to, to just give their best. Powerful stuff. We'll continue the journey, folks. Up next, Little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Welcome back, friends. Hey, when it comes to... Uh, talent management remember it's always about people management these are all these are all relationships and there's always going to be a relationship uh measurement as even as uh, he mark was taking us through his content um from the talent magnet book every one of these ideas he was talking about a better boss a brighter future and a bigger vision each one of those and then by the way the ability to tell the story those are all created through interaction. You know if you have a better boss by how you interact with them and how they interact with you. You know if you have a brighter future in your organization based on interaction. You know, based on it's not just the fact that you have a really good mission statement or a really great company party. It's about the fact that you know what your purpose is in this organization. You can see some light of day from where you are to where you want to be professionally. You can see that you're going to grow and be developed. You can see that because of your experience in the organization, you are actually elevating your abilities in your game, which will only increase your ability to get a job tomorrow. That all, every one of those things happens through interaction with human beings. Those human beings are your coworkers, your bosses, your team meetings, your your leaders, your HR department. We're doing this all day long, constantly. Um, and so remember, as you're, this is still about human relationships. This is about creating um, understanding. I, I can't uh, I, I I can't give too many details, but I've sat in meetings recently with uh, with my clients, and as we were talking. S- the children didn't – it was a family meeting. The children didn't feel like their parents were listening. And the parents basically were like, oh, please, of course we're listening. And yet the kids sat there and they were eloquent children that were teaching – that were literally voicing in a way that I hadn't heard kids ever voice. They were sharing their feelings, their voices, and they were being very very real and very upfront. They weren't – Hiding, they weren't fighting, they weren't flighting, they were just communicating. But the parents couldn't hear it, and the parents were so frustrated because the children were so um, not just conforming to what they want. And it was creating tension. And I, I sat there and I thought, boy, this this is this is a pretty typical argument issue that you know parents might have with their kids. Um, but the kids had also been hurt, and it's really complicated, and I can't give you too many details without giving a lot of detail. Anyway, in the end, it doesn't matter. Um, if we don't feel understood, it doesn't matter why the parents aren't understanding them. 
if the children don't feel understood by their parents, they're not going to change. They're not going to bend. And it doesn't matter why this, this communication isn't working. Um, it doesn't matter in an organization. If an employee doesn't see the, the future of their organization, um, it doesn't matter who we can blame. A lot of times we think it's about who do we blame for that. It doesn't matter who to blame because if that employee doesn't see the future, um, then they don't see the future. And you're going to pay for it. If they don't see the bigger vision of what the organization's trying to do, then they don't see it. If they don't have if they don't see that their boss is engaged and, and really helping them fulfill their mission, it's not gonna happen. So we have to almost go the extra mile on this process. If you are a boss or if you're an employee, we have to make sure you're looking into your organization. What can you do to push your boss to be a better boss? What can you do to make sure you understand your future in the organization? And what can you do to actually connect into the bigger vision? So you have to be proactive as an employee and bosses need to be proactive as bosses to make sure that those needs are being met for their people. Because if they're not, it doesn't matter why it didn't happen. You're losing leverage. You're losing ground with the people that matter most. So it's just it's basic business, right? It's business 101 and it's human relationships 101. Um, It's not enough to just keep losing talent. You can keep losing talent in your organization and and chalk it up to whatever, but if you don't fix it, the actual talent problem, then it's just not going anywhere, and it'll spiral to one degree or another. It also, by the way, remember, it doesn't mean you can't get by because average talent many times is fine. That's why the enemy of the best is the good. Sometimes sometimes your organization might want to be real that we can't afford, we can't have the top talent. So let's just get really good with average talent or let's get really good with what we've got or what we can get. It doesn't have to be top, top, top talent. And again, top talent's highly subjective, right? Anyway, we're all trying to work on it one way or another, but take more control of your own approach don't just sit back and hope that your boss and your company hand this all to you. Make sure you're proactively leading your life toward it. Good stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, uh, doing what we can to, to help you retain, keep, find, be the best talent in the world. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, it's time to go to, uh, to Jeff to do a little empty news for us. Jeff, what should we be uh, focused on that we didn't even know we needed to know? So real quick, we didn't bring this up when we talked about the McDonald's story, the guy that set the record for most Big Macs ever eaten. Yeah, yeah. What would you eat if you could eat the same food every single day? Like fast food? Any food you want. Well, I would love a good salad every day. Really? Blue, with blue cheese. Okay, but realistically. But that's but that's a lot of work. <laughs> so easier for me would be like going to Chick-fil-A and get their grilled nuggets. Okay. I could eat those every day. I think I could eat fried rice every day. Could you really? Oh, yeah. Anything with rice, I could pretty much eat every day. Wow. Anyway, uh, listen to this. I, I think students on BYU's campus would love this. One way to get students to vote for a uh, a school bond measure, can you think of what it is? Promise them pizza. Promise them pizza? How about 
they won't have to take their final exams. Whoa! If they vote on this bond measure, that's what an email sent to students at Warren Central High School in Mississippi said. However,、um, it turns out that the email was actually a mistake. <laughs> Oops. Well, high school kids can't vote. Well, the principal says that the email was sent in error. The Vicksburg Post reports a February 20th email asked the students to help pass a bond measure to renovate district schools. The email said those who vote in March are exempt from finals. Now, I'm curious. How、yes. does an email like that get sent in error? Did somebody draft it, and then at the last second think, "No,、nah, it's probably not the、uh, oh, best、oops. idea." Yeah. How do you、Something's、accidentally、weird. sent an email like that? That's a little fishy. Yeah, it's a little fishy. And then,、uh, just to close things up, I, I want to ask your advice on something. Oh, okay. Does this mean that I don't?、Uh, what does this say about me when my daughter comes in in the morning, lays down on my side of the bed because I'm gone, and she turns to my wife and very sweetly and innocently asks? You know, I'm thinking she's going to say something like, "Why doesn't Daddy ever get to have breakfast with us, or why is、yeah. Daddy never here in the morning?" No, no. What's she ask? She asks, "Why doesn't Daddy ever have to clean his side of the bed?" That's a good point. What does that say about me? Well, it says you're a very messy bedkeeper. Does I mean? But does that translate to other parts of my life? Oh yes. Am I? Is my life just a whole big hot mess right now? Yes, and your children know it. Really? That's what's even scarier. Well, how do I fool them into thinking that I've got everything under control? It's too late. They know. You thought you are. You thought you were fooling them, but they're no. They get it. They understand. Does that's a big hot mess? Does any parent really have everything under control? Yes. No. No. No, they don't. <laughs> no. And usually, though, the kids don't notice it. Usually, you, see, your daughter's getting this idea really early in age, because how old is she? She's six. Yeah. Normally, it's not until they're sixteen that they start acting like that. So she's ten years ahead. Okay, so that may, maybe means that I'm a good parent. Nope, it actually means、okay. that you're going to have ten years of having your child judge you <laughs> earlier than normal. <laughs> Crazy stuff, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you through your parenting challenges. This is the Matt Townsend Show, your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at one eight five five Chat BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know those millennials? They're just so lazy. As I look at Ben, yawning through the middle of my show. They're not lazy, folks. They're, they're we're misunderstood. Misunderstood, totally.、Yep. And they were basically like monsters created to fell. That's what I was thinking too. So let me give you some other coaching tools, and this isn't just for millennials. This would be for some some ideas for how you can coach other people when they bring you their problem, right? Because it's easy. You know, you may have a friend that constantly comes and brings you all of their issues, and you need to fix this for me.、Um, But if you're going to coach people, and this would work great with millennials, you know, in coaching them on their own、uh, issues as well. But、um, I'm going to give you just five basic keys, okay? As we go through this coaching corner,、uh, the first key is to know that the answers, any answer, or I call them a hook, a hook might be something that keeps somebody stuck. All of their answers, all of their hooks, are in them. 
not you. So when somebody comes to ask me a um, you know a question, but it's involving them or their life or their uh, experience in the world, when it's about them, the answers are in them, not me. And you got to realize that as a coach. And there's a lot of value to knowing that because if I understand the problems are in them, the issues are in them, then honestly, then I can uh, kind of make it more about them. I also don't have to be offended if they use or take my advice or not. Um, I also can know that if I give a solution that doesn't work, it's because I probably didn't unhook the right issue in them. So I want you to be thinking about somebody that comes up to you, asks you a lot of questions, wants your advice, maybe somebody that doesn't seem to take it a lot, uh, or or the people that maybe are around you wanting insight but don't necessarily ask for it. Know that their issues, their answers are in them. And I'm convinced that uh, that those issues are in them. And I, I, want them, I want them to be responsible for the fact that this is your world. A lot of times I'll ask somebody a question and they're like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Well, you must. I don't know is your fast answer that you're just telling me as a coach, but you're the only person that knows why you do what you do, right? I mean, I can guess why you do it. I can surmise, but you're the one with all of the information. You're the one with all the data. So make sure when you coach somebody that the answers are inside of them, even if it's just coaching them to kick a ball in a goal. And if if they have the inability to do it, then that hook is stopping them, but that hook is inside of them. And the job of a really good coach is to get inside that person and help that person find out what their answers are. Um, one reason that that's important, too, is because in motivation theory, it would say that unless this person uh, – unless the answers are coming from this person, they're less likely to be motivated to actually do anything about it anyway. So turn it back on them and uh, let me show you how we do that. One way to do it is to use questions, right, to turn on some lights. So like, let's say a mother came in and, you know, I don't – my son, we, we were going to move him to a new school. I'm pretty sure it's, I mean, it's an important thing. I'm not sure he's going to like it, but I, I want to move him to this new school. I think it's better for him. And um, they might just right out of the chute say, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't know your son. I don't know everything about what's going on here. So be careful to not just jump on that answer. Well, yeah, I would totally move him. I was moved to a new school, and I was his same age, and I turned out great. Um, instead, use some questions, right? So, you know, just use some questions like, you know what? I don't I don't know what to do about moving your son yet, but, you know, it sounds like you're really considering it. Um, but before I answer this, can I ask you a few questions? Like, so what are your goals for your son and his situation? And try to help him – by just asking the question, what are your goals, it allows them to have to go evaluate their goals. Or, uh, you know, what what do you perceive the problems might be with moving him to this area, to this new school? What does your heart tell you about this decision? What does your mind tell you? You know, and which of those two do you trust more? Which answer do you trust more? Another question you could just simply ask is, why are you asking someone else's advice on this? 
Why are you not just making the decision yourself? But push on them, right? Because – and push with questions. And let these questions not be to trap them, not be to beat them up, not even just so you know how to answer this person. Ask the questions so that this person has to explore what they are doing, right? If the, if the issue is in them, then ask the questions that help them explore it. The more information we gather here, it's also going to do two things. It's going to give me more data, but it's probably going to lower their emotion about this decision. Anytime somebody brings me a big you know, bundle of emotion, I usually like to get them talking and sharing their feelings about the emotion. So first step, understand their answers and hooks are in them, in them not me. Second is use questions to turn the lights on. My goal is just to get information. Once I can figure out what their goals are with their son and what's the history of the situation and what are they feeling right now about it and why are you asking me, why aren't you asking someone else and what does your gut tell you, a lot of those might – they might just answer it themselves, right? Another thing I like to do is as they're talking is I reflect back what I hear them saying. I'll reflect back. So it sounds like – You really like to have your child try another school, but you're afraid he'll lose friends if he goes to the new school. Is that what you're saying? And I just hold it up back to what they were to them so that they have to look at what they're saying. And the way I do that is I just basically paraphrase what they just told me. And then I say, so is that what you're saying? And then they have to agree or disagree. Well, yeah, that's well. And it's it's not just like that. I also I don't want to feel like I'm too demanding that I'm pushing my son this way. Now, the more they talk, I love it because the more information it gives me about them, but it also allows me to maybe look a little bit deeper at what their motives are, what's driving them, what their concerns are. If this mother, for example, keeps saying, I just don't want to make the decision for him. I just I want I I don't want to make a mistake and I feel like I might be pushing him too hard, but then I'd go talk more about that. Man, it sounds like you feel like you're applying a lot of pressure about this decision. Tell me more about that and then let them explore that issue. Does that make sense? So as they're sharing their issues, the issue is usually never the real issue we're discussing. This isn't about school. This is about this mother's concerned about her son. She's concerned and she wants to make a change for her son and She's also concerned that the change will create other problems, like he will lose his friends or she's just being too demanding. So if you hold it up, don't agree with it, don't disagree with it, don't argue it. I don't even give other advice. I just say – I just kind of let them kind of sift through what they're thinking about. And by not taking a position, then they don't have to like you know retract into their position and then we don't have to debate about it. Keep it very open so we can keep this issue moving until we find out what's going on. Then another rule I like to use is I point out their inconsistencies. So it sounds like you're worried about your son and, you know, and his grades, and yet you also don't want to feel like you're making the decision for your son. Is that what you're, is that what you're feeling? This, that's a little bit of an inconsistency, right? You want him to move on. And you're concerned it's not a great idea. Point out the inconsistencies. What I find many times, it's the inconsistencies in our thinking that come out in a conversation. And if we can hold it up, not call them on it. Oh, it sounds like this is what's really going on. You don't need to be the pop psychologist. Just I'm noticing that 
you you really feel like you're pushing your kid too hard. And you also really feel strongly that he needs to move on. Talk to me about that. And then if I can get them to be honest a little bit more about the inconsistency, that's where I see a lot of truth come out when I'm coaching couples, when I'm working with people. Um, it's it's pretty interesting stuff. And so point out those inconsistencies. And then last and certainly not least, be cautious about giving advice, right? Be cautious about giving advice. And one reason I say that is because um, people take your advice, right? So if you give advice, people are going to take it. It's one of the weirdest things I learned being a kind of a radio TV personality is people actually take your advice. Be super careful offering it. The other reason I want you to be super careful offering advice is because um, they also need people to blame. So if they don't like your advice or if your advice backfires, you're the one that gave it. So they will hold you accountable to it, right? Five basic, easy coaching steps. Know your answers and hooks are in the people you're talking to, not you. Use questions to turn on some lights. Reflect back what you hear them saying. Point out their inconsistencies, cautiously, of course. And be careful giving advice, folks. Be careful. I've seen people advise a divorce because their friend gave them that advice. Be careful the advice you give anybody, um, especially if you haven't done the other steps before it. Stick with us, folks, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. I think people... The current political climate has been difficult for Americans of all political stripes. The focus has been on adults, yet teens and college-aged Americans are exposed to the same headlines. Are the polarized headlines and political events causing unhealthy levels of stress for our youth? Well, to look into this further, Dr. Melissa DeYonker has worked with others at the University of Michigan to conduct research and we have her on the show here today. Melissa, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. And thank you so much for having me. So I don't know if you've been tuned into our program yet this morning, but we've been talking about this quite a bit because usually we will start off the show talking about all all that's going on in the world of politics. And, you know, we're, we're just constantly surrounded by politics and the news. It's, it's a, a very stressful time for a lot of people. Why do you think it does cause so much stress, though? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, you know, one thing that we know about stress is that the more, the, you know, the more times you're exposed to something, um, you start to feel the effects more. So chronic or uncontrollable stress. Um, is associated with all sorts of mental and physical health problems down the road. Um, so, you know, it's the repeated exposure um, that, that may be playing a big role in that. Do you think it has anything to do with the media coverage of politics? One one point that we talked about earlier in the program is that a lot of these people are very expert in amping up the dramatics of the political news. Do you think that plays into it? Hmm. I would say, you know, we didn't ask that specifically in the study, so I can't say for sure. 
Um, but it seems likely, right? So a lot of the adolescents and young adults too reported that they were just sick of having this conversation and having it be so divided. Um, so they're talking to their parents, they're talking to their friends, they're seeing stories on social media, media and on the news that really makes them feel like this is a battle, right? Like we are um, arguing all the time, sensationalized. And so I think it is likely that that plays into it. So tell us more about the study that, that you surveyed. You surveyed uh, 80 youth, and what were some of the parameters of the study? Sure. So I'm part of a team of adolescent health researchers, and we actually talk to youth every week via text messaging. So we know that uh, youth are always on their phones, right? And text messaging is a is way to access um, or a way to communicate with them. So we actually send out weekly surveys via text message about a ton of different health and social issues. Um, so we ask them about their relationships with their doctors. We ask them about how, how much they sleep at night. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that we were noticing was that in the months before the election, there, were a ton, there was a ton of media coverage about how stressed out adults were. Um, so we wanted to hear from youth to see if they were experiencing the same thing. So three, t- three time points, we um, talked to the adolescents about stress. It was before the, <clears throat> excuse me, one week before the election, two weeks after, and then four months after. Um, and we had about eight and um, tell us in an open-ended way, just sort of tell us the story of what they were experiencing related to politics. Interesting. So, uh, you know, one thing I noticed, you, you mentioned this study, and I, I think of I think of my relationship with my children and my stress level and how that translates to their stress level. I notice mm-hmm. that when 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 we don't exactly have everything put together or if they can tell that we're upset or we're stressed out over something, it causes some anxiety in them. Do you think that any of this stress that these uh, teenagers and college-age students are experiencing is inherited from their parents? Are they being stressed out because their parents are stressed out? Hmm. Well, I don't know for sure with the, you know, with the youth that we talked to, but I would imagine that the, that the um, adolescents are they're living in the same space as their parents, right? Um, so it makes sense that that environment um, would be similar and would also have an impact on the young people. I think one thing that, that we forget, though, or not a lot of attention is given to is that, you know, politics affect youth just as much as, as a politics affect adults, right? So that the policies that are being made, um, the conversations that are, um, that are happening in the country also affect the, um, you know, the, the way that adolescents are able to live their lives. So they're paying attention. Um, they're thinking about how this might impact them. Um, and that's contributing to the amount of distress that they're feeling. So, Melissa, what were what were some of the findings that you had? What were some of the the biggest concerns that you came across in these studies from the youth? Well, I would say first um, that the stress hasn't gone away. So, youth were reporting stress before the election. They were reporting it during and then after. Um, so symptoms like not sleeping, difficulty concentrating, and then the more emotional, just stressed out, anxious feelings didn't go away after the election. Yeah. Um, so it's something that's continuing 
to affect young people. And like I, like I was saying earlier, we know that chronic stress can have really negative implications for health and well-being. Um, so we really want uh, practitioners, teachers, parents to pay attention to what's going on in um, the lives of young people to make sure that we're just we're not ignoring this as a problem, um, but helping youth to develop coping strategies or, um, you know, think about how they can they can deal with the, the stress of politics in a positive way. Yeah. Do you feel like there's a correlation between the level of stress that they experience and their level of involvement in social media? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So we didn't ask that specifically, um, but there is some evidence in, in, in what the adolescents were saying that a lot of their, their news and their frustration came from the exposure on social media. So because they are so plugged in, they are constantly receiving information from their friends, from their family and the world. And, um, you know, they have to process that, right? So if they are spending a lot of time on social media, it makes sense to me um, that that would play into the amount of stress that they're feeling. We do know that that's true with adults. So there was a study from the American Psychological Association that showed that adults who used social media more often reported more um, more stress before the election. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. I wonder, yeah, I wonder uh, what would happen to our stress level if we just kind of backed up a bit and didn't participate as much in social media. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, unplugged a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Melissa DeYonker, uh, who is from the or uh, conducted a study with others at the University of Michigan um, to gauge stress in teens and college age students. And I'm curious to know what uh, what positive findings you had. Did you have uh, any? Any responses from the youth that indicated that maybe they weren't as stressed as some of the others, or maybe they they felt safe, they felt secure? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, that's a very good point. So we did um, we did talk to youth who felt you know that they they never engaged in politics, and so politics doesn't affect them at all. Um, we had youth who were saying, you know, I don't really worry about it, or I turn off the news. I don't pay attention to what's going on. So we did have a a small portion of young people who were saying that. Um, We also, not in this study necessarily, but um, we've done a follow-up where we actually have talked to 1,500 youth now. Um, Same age group, same questions related to politics, and it's been in in the time since the 2016 election. Um, We're still analyzing it. But I can tell you that some of the some of the youth reported that, you know, they feel like things are going great. So they feel happy. They feel secure. They feel like, you know, their financial situation is improving in the last few months. So there is a small subset of of young people who, um, you know, have these have these different reactions to the election. Yeah. Adding on to that, though, um, you know, we also found that supporters of either candidate, so the stress, the level of stress that young people were reporting was not specific to who they who they wanted to win the election. Mm. Um, so we had youth who noted that they were Hillary supporters, or youth who noted that they were going to vote for Trump, 
and others who said, you know, I don't like either candidate. And all three types of individuals were saying the same sorts of things, that they can't sleep, they're nervous, they're anxious, um, they're having difficulty concentrating in school. So that's a real problem. Oh, absolutely. And I'm curious because uh, you, obviously you, there was an age range in this study. I'm curious to mm-hmm. know what was the youngest group of of youth that you got responses from? And also, in your opinion, what what's kind of the age at which these uh, these youth start to form some of these political opinions? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a very good question that I don't have the answer to in terms of um, <laughs> Well, let, let's get back to the first part of that question. The how, how young were the, the youngest uh, youth that you interviewed? Fourteen. Fourteen. Okay. Yep. Wow. It'd be interesting yeah. to, see, to, to kind of put, uh, match up their uh, political stances and their, their level of stress with what their parents' opinions are mm. and their level of stress. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's focus on on what we can do. Uh, so, how how can we help these these youth not feel so stressed? How can we help them so that they can better understand the events that are going on in the news, so that they don't have to be so stressed, they don't have to feel so worried? Hmm. Well, there have been you know there have been recommendations from. For example, the American Psychological Association that say taking time away from news is really important, right? So turn off the television or the social media and disengage. You want to read and be involved enough to know what's going on, but not necessarily more than that. Um, especially if you're feeling like when you're reading through your social media pages and your timelines that it becomes overwhelming, right? So it's acknowledging that feeling stress or feeling anxious about things that are happening in the world is a normal thing. And then doing what you need to do to feel better in that situation. Based on research, we know that um, youth who, who volunteer, who get more involved in an issue that is important to them, um, who are engaged in their community, actually report um, better mental health. They have better mental health outcomes. Um, so getting involved in politics even may be useful. So we don't know that from this study, um, but that's definitely something I'd be interested in looking at in the future. I just love that idea. That's another thing that we talked about earlier in the program is trying to get involved at a, at a local level, whether it's you know doing something as small as as writing to your local representatives or going to a city council meeting. I'm even thinking right. of, of doing something as small as hosting a, a block party so that I'm just engaging the community a little more. So that's interesting. So the more involved that they become in these events that are stressing them out, it seems like the less stressed they will be. That's really interesting. Right. So, so one of the things about stress is that um, or mental health in general with young people is that if you know that you can affect a difference locally, you can make a small difference, you can contribute, or for example, that your vote matters, these are all positive things that um, affect your mental health, right? So knowing that you can create a change, whether that's just through volunteering or, or having your block party or doing something positive, um, that's going to have mental health benefits. So yeah, I think I think we, you know we might see that with 
what's been going on with all the all the protests related to gun violence, right? So instead of backing away, young people have been walking out of school and standing up for something that they think is important. Yeah. I think that, you know, dem- that demonstrates most likely that they have control over the situation um, and have a voice in what's happening to them. Melissa, it's so interesting. The solution seems so simple, and yet it it doesn't seem like too many people are interested in the solution. Let me let me give you an example. I just remember growing up, and this is this is the case for so many children, where you know you had an you had an ouchie or you had something that wasn't feeling very well. So you would say, "Dad, it hurts when I when I touch this part of my head." And what did your dad say? He would just say. Well, don't do it, right? So it seems like if social if uh, social media is causing us so much so much stress, we should just back away, right? Just don't do it, right? And so I think some right. of these ideas that you're giving us are just fantastic. And I'm curious to know, just in closing here, Melissa, what what else do you see going forward in your research, and what do you hope to see to help uh, de-stress our youth in America? Hmm. A simple question, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I think our goal um, and our larger goal with the study that I'm a part part of is really to connect youth experiences and youth perspectives to policy. Um, So we feed this information to policymakers with the idea that hopefully they will care about youth uh, perspectives on issues and use that to inform um, the policies that they support. Um, so part of part of our goal is to um, to help make change on a on a local, state, and federal level um, based on what young people think and feel. And I think again, going back to what's happening across schools in this country, right? Um, you know, that's really important. And and youth are expressing, you know, a need to be a part of the conversation. It affects them. Um, you know, policies affect them, and they want to be a part of that conversation. Well, Melissa, we really appreciate your time here on the Matt Townsend Show and your perspective on this issue. Um, her name is Dr. Melissa DeYonker, and she is a research fellow with the Michigan Mixed Methods Research and Scholarship Program. And uh, she's been talking to us today about how politics are stressing out America's youth, but she gave us some fantastic ideas. I think the youth are starting to uh, pick up on some of these ideas. She mentioned the students in, in Florida and really throughout the country that are making their voices heard. And I guess another way that they can engage more is to not engage as much in social media. Anyway, we will continue the discussion here on the Matt Townsend Show when we return. program, I mentioned uh, going to a baseball game with my wonderful daughter last night. Well, you mentioned eating food at a baseball game That's true. I don't know how closely we we paid, I don't know how closely we watched the game. I think mostly I was either concentrating on food or concentrating on trying to keep warm because we found out very quickly that we were not prepared for the uh, very cold weather that we experienced. But anyway... As I mentioned earlier, we had a soft pretzel. We had a hot dog. 
My daughter had a churro. We shared some Starburst. We shared a hot chocolate. And this was all within like a four and a half inning period of time. So I I, I felt like I wasn't doing us any favors on our waistline, which is interesting because Terry South has some statistics for us. And I'm hoping that uh, I'm not contributing to what you're about to share with us. Maybe. Uh Uh-oh. So uh, Wallet Hub, Mm -hmm. we've had one of their polls earlier this week, but they do random like polling. And they come out with some data. They just look at statistics and put out some stuff, and sure. hopefully you want to look into it further, I guess. But they compared 100 of the most populated U.S. metro areas across 18 key indicators of weight-related problems. Whoa. Right? So they're basically trying to find out, as they have this title, the fattest cities in America. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they're not trying to, you know, paint this with a, uh, a pop. Sure. It's like a—it's not necessarily— a positive or negative they're just saying hey this is what it is this is the fattest right. cities so it starts out by saying americans are the fattest people in the world not just stereotypically but statistically too in fact in 2017 almost 40 percent of the u.s population age 15 and older is obese and i think you know this, this is something that we've heard for a long time right, right? this isn't this is news but then right. it says uh, the extra pounds have inflated the cost of obesity-related medical treatment to nearly three or $316 billion a year, and annual productivity loss due to work absenteeism to more than $8.6 billion a year. So, you know, there's a lot of money being yeah. spent and lost yeah. as we, we deal with the, the way we are as a people, I guess, 40% of the country, obese. Um, so they looked at 100 of the most populated U.S. metro areas, had some statistics, and this is what they came up with. So with this list, you can look at it 1 through 100, right? The mm-hmm. number one on this list is the fattest city in America. Okay. The 100 would be seen as one of the more fittest cities in America. Okay. So you got a positive, negative approach. So I'll, yeah. gi- I'll give you the top five, which is the fattest, and the bottom five, which is the not so fat. Yeah, to okay. be clear, this isn't the 100th isn't even the 100th most fat. No. It, they only took 100 cities, yeah. and so the 100th would be the most fit of the 100 they took. Or not so fat. The not so fat. Depending on which side you want gotcha. to look at. You guys are being negative. <laughs> so what do you, where, we'll just play the guess, guessing game. Where do you think the fattest city, according to this, in America is? I'm guessing either somewhere in Texas or somewhere, uh, yeah. Texas isn't even in the top. Oh, no, Texas is right there. I'll tell you. We'll, we'll, we'll get this. <laughs> so the fattest city in America, Little Rock, Arkansas. Oh, Really? It says Little Rock, North Little Rock, and Conway, which is well, suburbs probably, but Arkansas. They rank ninth, ninth in o- what obesity and overweight, uh, one in health consequences, and one in food and fitness rank. Wow. Wow. Okay. Two is Shreveport, Louisiana. Yeah. Three, uh, McAllen, Texas, which is down in the southern sort of boot, I guess you could call it, because it's Texas. Did you ever live close to there? My sister did. Okay. My sister spent some time down there. Uh, Memphis, Tennessee is four. Mobile, Alabama is five. Knoxville, Tennessee. Jackson, Mississippi. uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Baton Rouge. Lexington. Those are your top ten. So places where there are a lot of fried foods. 
Yeah, I was like, every one of these is like barbecue, 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 barbecue. Oh, yeah. but it's so good. Of course it's good. Oh. No one, no one's criticizing the goodness of the barbecue. Doesn't this – okay, isn't another way to look at this list at – these are the top five cities that have the best taste in food. Yeah, this is, these, are, these are my vacation <laughs> lists right now. Yeah, I'm developing yeah. – That sounds pretty good to me. Uh, yeah. Whatever your spin is, yeah. <laughs> um, and so the bottom five or top five, depending on your okay. – you want to do this – uh, so we'll go. Uh, how how would this work? I guess the one hundred would be the least fattest, or we're just last place. Like I'll start at ninety five. Oh, yeah. uh, Boston, the Boston mm-hmm. area, uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Yeah, not uh, not to be confused with Colorado Springs, Connecticut. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Seattle, Washington. Yep. Salt Lake City, Utah is ninety eight. Ninety nine is Honolulu, Hawaii. Yeah. And 100 is the Portland Vancouver area. Portland Washington. Man, we're Portland, always Oregon. we're always like last in everything. We just really failed in this department. Can't even win at being fat. I I think that's the way we need to look at it. We're just we we just can't win. I think no. I just learned just the clam win. chowder is actually slimming then. Because really? Boston was in Boston's the area. bottom. That's a good point. Now, wait a minute. It's good so it was, for you. It was Boston. What was the one after Boston again? Boston, Colorado Springs, Colorado Springs Seattle, Seattle, Salt Lake, Honolulu, and Portland, Oregon. See, now, I thought they loved Spam in Hawaii. Yeah. I would think Spam would it's not. It's good for you. But the sodium. The stats don't lie, Jeffrey. Wow. We need to get Palakiko in here. He could tell us. If this is accurate. It has to do with like healthy lifestyles and medical records also. So, I mean. Maybe it's because they're always at the beach. So, they need to look slim. Apparently, the people that live in Hawaii actually have to work occasionally. It's not like they're on like just permanent vacation. No, 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 no. They're always on the beach. Lots of stereotypes going on here. Everybody's always dancing around and and lays and and hula skirts. It's one luau after another? Right. All right. It's just like everybody here in Utah has 10 we're, children. And we're constantly skiing. <laughs> yeah, that healthy lifestyle of Colorado Springs and Salt Lake probably has to do with a little bit of skiing and snowboarding. Yeah. Which means you just pile on the layers of clothing so no one can tell if you're fat or not. There you go. This gets back to all the stereotypes and speculation that we were talking about earlier that are so much fun to talk about. Right. Like that we, people tune in for. We gave our top five and then we instantly <laughs> went barbecue because, you know, that's all they eat down there is barbecue. Because think, I'm hungry. Well, yeah. I think one way we make Little Rock, Arkansas feel better is we just point out that we here in Utah failed miserably. They beat us. At what? They beat us handily at this list. Well, they're number one. They're number one. Not necessarily the list you want to be number one on. Little Rock, you're number one. So there you go. I think that's the big takeaway. There's your fattest cities in America. (laughs) All righty. Well, I think all that did was make me more hungry. Perfect timing because it's the weekend. Anyway, when we return, we're going to continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. You know, life as a police officer seems like it's hard enough without all of the, you know, stereotypical, getting back to stereotypes, hazing that, you know, we see in movies with the rookie cop getting teased and hazed. 
Well, I feel really bad for this rookie cop. Uh, Connecticut police say a man stole a rookie officer's car and used his credit cards to buy food at a Taco Bell and shop at Walmart. 21-year-old Derek Johnson was charged Tuesday with multiple offenses, including burglary, second-degree larceny, and identity theft. Police say Johnson stole the car from a parking garage on January 23rd, the night of the officer's police academy graduation. Oh, no, that's the worst. Happy graduation. Investigators say Johnson bought items from Walmart and Taco Bell with the stolen credit cards before leaving the car in a private lot. Police later recovered the car. Investigators say they identified Johnson using surveillance footage. Now, I can imagine if there is any hazing that goes on at a police department, I can imagine it would only be that much worse if the day that you're going to be a police officer, you you have your car stolen. Oops. I feel so bad for this officer. Oh, my goodness. Do you think the punishment should be more severe if it's a crime that's committed against a police officer, a theft against a police officer? No. The law is the law, Jeff. So we shouldn't discriminate. That's right. No, I think it's I think it's very interesting that he went to Taco Bell and Walmart. So it's not like I mean, if I was were I a criminal, Jeffrey, and not that we encourage that kind of thing. I think that I have places that I would go with someone else's credit card beyond the places that I normally go with mm. my credit card. So it seems like anywhere outside of Utah or some uh, even like a rural community, you would notice if there's a police officer not in uniform in their car. Oh, yeah. Right? I'm pretty sure. Here in Utah, you know, it's pretty standard to see somebody in a police car that's not in uniform. But, uh, yeah, I think that would raise some red flags with other people. Anyway, good luck to this officer. I hope that uh, the other police officers treat him right and uh, don't haze him. Give him a break and maybe throw him a graduation party because it sounds like his graduation was not all that great.